Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We try to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, and so we're here to spoon-feed you the latest research. Now, let's see what we're covering today. First off, keeping them stable for intubation. Again, it's atomidate and ketamine head-to-head. -head. Then, PEs are a tendency to clot. So if they bleed, that's probably on us. We'd better know the risk. Third, updates on antithrombolytic therapy for VTEs. Fourth, empiric full-dose anticoagulation in COVID patients. And fifth, big news in the PE rule-out business, the best way to save yourself some dimers. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the sympathetic Bo Stubblefield, Seth Walsh-Blackmore, and Clay Smith. And so I give you the first article titled Atomidate versus Ketamine for Emergency Endotracheal Intubation, a Randomized Clinical Trial out of the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. We just covered a whole bunch of research on this exact question, Atomidate versus Ketamine. So, in critically ill patients who need induction for intubation, there are essentially two workhorses. Like I said, etomidate or ketamine. The question then becomes, of course, which is safer? A few trials have tried to address this. The Ketased trial showed no difference in SOFA scores between the two, but a recent meta-analysis demonstrated that etomidate might have a negative impact on mortality. If we focus just on short-term outcomes, what would we find? This trial was a double-blinded RCT prompted by a previous QI project showing increased mortality in patients receiving Atomidate. They recruited 800 patients and compared 7-day survival after the patients received standard doses of Atomidate or Ketamine for RSI. And here's what they found. A statistically and clinically higher rate of mortality in those that received Atomidate a 77% mortality in the ketamine group, and 8% higher at 85% in the atomidate group. In case you're curious, that's a number needed to harm of just 13. But so they lived out the week, but they didn't make it past a month. By 28 days, the mortality rate was equal in both groups. All right, so ketamine's safer in the short term, but do we really care if the mortality after a month is the same between the two? And why did one catch up with the other? I'm not sure for this. In a spoonful, if you like ketamine for your risky intubations, then perhaps you've made the right choice. At least in the short term, ketamine is safer for RSI than Atomidate. Then we have the second article titled, An Original Risk Score to Predict Early Major Bleeding in Acute Pulmonary Embolism, the Syncope, Anemia, Renal Dysfunction, PE, SARD, Bleeding Score out of the journal Chest. So we spend a lot of time thinking about how terrible PEs can be for our patients. But every now and then, you've got to stop and think about how terrible we could potentially be being for our patients by reflexively anticoagulating everybody. To be a bit more mindful about this, there are risk scores that are made to estimate bleeding risks. To name a few, there's the VTE bleed score, the right, the RIET, R-I-E-T-E, I don't know how to pronounce that, and the BACS score which are great, but they focus mostly on 30 to 90 day risks. I'm all for thinking ahead, but I'm also an emergency medicine doctor. So I'm a little bit short-sighted. What about the short-term risk? These authors prospectively derived the PE SARD bleeding risk score from a multi-center registry and validated it internally in the derivation data set using some statistical methods. 
Similar to the other risk scores on the market, the patients in this cohort had a variety of different anticoagulants, and this included thrombolytics. PE SARD. So, okay, so that's a bit of a weird name, but SARD is an acronym for the risk score components, which I already mentioned in the title of the article, but I'll repeat them. They were syncope, anemia, and renal dysfunction. Pretty simple. It gives you a score out of five. When you dichotomize to either low risk, that is a score of zero, versus intermediate or high risk, then the PE SARD score improved major bleeding prediction compared with the other risk scores that I mentioned at the top of this article. So that's pretty good. And that's the major finding in the study. Now, on a bit of a tangent, recall that it matters which anticoagulant you're picking. Low molecular weight heparin is safer than unfractionated heparin. The only time you're really going to be giving unfractionated heparin is if these patients are going to go on to be thrombolized. But remember that only a minority of patients end up getting thrombolized. So the default should probably be low molecular weight heparin. Also, I probably don't have to tell you that DOACs are safer than warfarin pretty much all around. In terms of which DOAC, apixaban seems to have lower rates of bleeding than new users of rivaroxaban. In a spoonful, I have a present for you. A new risk score for stratifying patients with acute PEs according to their risk of major bleeding events. That new score is the PE-SARD score. And then we have the third article. Antithrombotic therapy for VTE disease. Second update of the CHEST guideline and expert panel report out of the journal CHEST. Guideline updates. Now, these posts are typically chocked full of goodies. So many goodies that I tend not to cover all of them on the podcast or I risk serving you more than just your customary spoonful. So I recommend checking out the blog post on this one if you haven't already. There are a total of 29 statements. I'm going to tell you, well, I'm going to tell you fewer statements than that, actually. First statement. In patients with acute isolated distal DVT of the leg, without severe symptoms or risk factors for extension, we suggest serial imaging of the deep veins for two weeks over anticoagulation. This is a weak recommendation with moderate certainty evidence. Or... If they have severe symptoms or risk factors for extension, we suggest anticoagulation over serial imaging of deep veins. This is a weak recommendation with low certainty evidence. To add to that, a recent large retrospective study showed that if we're using DOACs for treatment, then it may be better to anticoagulate these patients with isolated distal DVTs of the leg. You need to pay attention to risk scores, though, like a positive D-dimer without any other reasons, clots more than 5 centimeters long or 5 millimeters thick, clots near proximal veins, unprovoked clots, those related to cancer, recurrent clots, related to COVID, or causing severe symptoms. Also take into account, of course, patient preference. Next, in patients with subsegmental pulmonary embolism and no proximal DVT in the legs who have low risk of recurrent VTE, we suggest clinical surveillance over anticoagulation. This is a weak recommendation with low certainty evidence. Or in those with high risk for VTE, we suggest anticoagulation over clinical surveillance. This is a weak recommendation with low certainty evidence. We just saw this a few weeks ago with a study showing that the recurrence rates of VTE after subsegmental pulmonary embolisms was 3%, especially if they were over 65 or had multiple subsegmental PEs. 3% is a lot of patients, just keep that in mind. Next, in patients who are incidentally found to have asymptomatic pulmonary embolisms, we suggest the same initiation and treatment phase anticoagulation 
or comparable patients with symptomatic pulmonary embolism, this is a weak recommendation with moderate certainty evidence. This makes sense. But remember that study that we covered, I guess it was a while ago now, that showed that being proactive about finding PEs in COPD exacerbation patients wasn't helpful? Well, I wonder if this statement will really hold up in the future, or maybe we were wrong about finding PEs that we didn't know about in COPD patients. Anyways, next. In most patients with acute pulmonary embolism not associated with hypotension, we recommend against systematic administration of thrombolytic therapy, a strong recommendation with low certainty evidence. This is a so-called submassive PE, for which evidence leads away from using alteplase. Long-term follow-up in the PATHO study did not find a mortality benefit, reduced dyspnea, or reduced chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Next, in patients with acute pulmonary embolism associated with hypertension who also have a high bleeding risk, failed systemic thrombolysis, or shock that is likely to cause death before systemic thrombolysis can take effect, so really within a few hours, if appropriate expertise and resources are available, then we suggest catheter-assisted thrombus removal over no such intervention. This is a weak recommendation with low certainty evidence. These are our really sick patients. So you just have to remember that procedural approaches like this exist for those patients. Next, in patients with low-risk pulmonary embolism, we recommend outpatient treatment over hospitalization provided access to medications, ability to access outpatient care, and home circumstances are adequate. This is a strong recommendation with low certainty evidence. Now, although it's possible to send home these PE patients, in practice, this doesn't happen very often. Less than 5% of all PE patients are actually sent home. Remember to use your risk scores, though, people. Next, in patients with acute VTE in the setting of cancer, we recommend an oral 10A inhibitor, that is, a pixaban, edoxaban, or rivaroxaban, over low molecular weight heparin for initiation and treatment phases of therapy. This is a strong recommendation with moderate certainty evidence. This is actually new. We used to use low molecular weight heparin. The caveat is that edoxaban and rivaroxaban might increase bleeding risk with luminal GI malignancies. Apixaban or low molecular weight heparin may be preferred in these patients with such malignancies. Next, in patients with superficial venous thrombosis of the lower limb at increased risk of clot progression to DVT or PE, we suggest the use of anticoagulation for 45 days over no anticoagulation. This is a weak recommendation with moderate certainty evidence. This is interesting. Other than clearly provoked clots, there is benefit to treating superficial clots, especially if there are risk factors for DVTs. They even go on to suggest that fundaparinox, 2.5 milligrams daily, is the treatment for these patients. Next, and finally the last statement, in patients with acute DVT of the leg, we suggest against using compression stockings routinely to prevent post-thrombotic syndrome. This is a weak recommendation with low certainty evidence. Some people swear by compression socks, but to me, they don't actually look that comfy. And they also don't prevent this bad outcome. In a spoonful, when in doubt, you'll probably want to look up these guidelines from time to time on your own when you're treating VTE patients. Now the fourth article titled Efficacy and Safety of Thrombolytic Dose Heparin versus Standard Prophylactic or Intermediate Dose Heparins for Thromboprophylaxis in High-Risk Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19, the HEP-COVID Randomized Clinical Trial out of the JAMA Internal Medicine. 
you know, a significant amount of the morbidity and mortality surrounding COVID hospitalization is due to thrombotic events. As many as 23% of COVID patients in the ICU have some kind of VTE. Empiric anticoagulation at therapeutic doses is not benign, though. We need to know as much as we can before we start treating everybody at the door. This trial was a multi-center RCT of hospitalized, non-pregnant adult COVID patients who required oxygen and had a D-dimer four times the upper limit of normal or sepsis-induced coagulopathy scores of four or more. They recruited 257 patients to be randomized to treatment with anoxaparin 1 mg per kg BID or standard prophylactic regime from whatever that was at that site. The primary outcome was a composite outcome. That's important. We'll get back to the fact that it was composite in a second. And this composite outcome was comprised of the occurrence of VTE, arterial thromboembolism, including MIs and strokes, and death within 30 days. The results were thus. The composite outcome occurred in 29% of the therapeutically anticoagulated group and 42% of the standard group. That's a risk ratio of 0.68, and that is statistically significant. And while the occurrence of major bleeding was higher in the therapeutic group, a risk ratio of nearly 3, this difference was not significant. That comes down to a number needed to treat of 8 and a number needed to harm of 33. I like it, actually. I'm in. What you need to keep in mind, though, is that these results were strongly driven by the occurrence of DVTs in non-ICU patients within that composite outcome. In fact, if you isolated the different parts, then the occurrence of DVTs was the only one that was significantly different. So I like this study, but the practice of grouping things together like that in a composite outcome when you know, or at least you must know, that you're very unlikely to find a significant difference in things like mortality is kind of shameful. The number of recent studies showing significant mortality improvement in ICU patients is very short, like count on my fingers short. Please, it's better to take yourself and your study seriously by trying to focus on outcomes you actually think you'll change. In a spoonful, empiric therapeutic anticoagulation of hospitalized COVID patients showed a decrease in 30-day thrombotic events. And now the fifth and final article titled Effect of a Diagnostic Strategy Using an Elevated and Age-Adjusted D-Dimer Threshold on Thromboembolic Events in Emergency Department Patients with Suspected Pulmonary Embolism, a Randomized Clinical Trial out of the JAMA. Ooh, I like this trial. This is a nice trial. See, here's the thing. When I want to rule out a PE, I, of course, start with the PERC score. If that fails in ruling out PE, then I've mostly moved on to the well score in the past. But the problem with the well score is that even if they're low risk, I still have to get a D-dimer. What I'd like is just one last chance to avoid sending a dimer. And that is possible with the year's criteria. This was a cluster-randomized crossover trial using a non-inferiority approach to compare two methods of ruling out PEs. The primary outcome was VDE at three months. Now, they were comparing two strategies here. Strategy one was to first do PERC. If they failed PERC, then you moved on to years criteria with an age-adjusted D-dimer. Now, remember that years doesn't typically use age-adjusted D-dimers, but they use that in this study. If years is positive, then you do a CTPA. If yours is negative, then no imaging is required and PE is ruled out. In the second strategy, you perk them, and if the perk is positive, then you right away just get an age-adjusted D-dimer and do a CTPA in all patients with the positive dimer. 
They recruited 1,200 patients and found only one patient with a VTE at three months after strategy number one, that was PERC plus the year's criteria. Compared to five patients with three months VTEs in the PERC and dimer group, this was well within the limit of non-inferiority with lower rates of imaging in the years group as well. This is big. This is an awesome trial. This is going to be my go-to method to rule out PE, actually. In a spoonful, and PERC positive patients using the years criteria with an age-adjusted D-dimer is non-inferior to just getting an age-adjusted D-dimer straight away. I, of course, don't have to convince you about the great negative predictive value of D-dimers. All right, guys, that wraps us up for this week. What is everything that we covered? Let's do a quick review. First off, not sure if just a week is enough to really care about, but ketamine was safer for RSI over the next week, but not over the next month in an RCT comparing it to Etomidate. Second, a new risk score for acute bleeding risk in PE patients is now on the market. This is the PE SARD score. Third, if you like reading guidelines, we have a whole bunch of guidelines on VTE treatment for you to read. Fourth, empiric therapeutic anticoagulation of admitted COVID patients may be the way to go according to this trial, but only if your goal is to reduce DVTs in non-ICU patients because that's all that it really showed. Fifth, my rule-out pulmonary embolism strategy is now directly from this article and will save me a bunch of dimers and some imaging. First you perk, and then you apply the year's criteria with an age-adjusted D-dimer. That's it, guys. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can also subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up the literature one spoonful at a time. Thank you. <laughs>